Good morning again. Let's go ahead and begin uh, with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your continued kindness to us. We thank you for the opportunity to sing these praises to your name. We thank you for your continued faithfulness to us. And as we are in this Christmas season, we thank you for the incarnation. We thank you for Christ coming. Uh, We thank you for the fact that you have given yourself for us, even though we did not deserve that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the year 325 A.D., Emperor Constantine called together the Nicene Council. This council was made up of over 200 bishops, and the council was called together to address a number of issues, uh, procedural issues, uh, jurisdiction issues, and administrative issues. But the issue that really uh, overshadowed everything else was the issue of the nature of Christ, specifically the deity of Christ. Was Jesus, as this council would begin to flesh out, was Jesus the same substance as God the Father, or was Jesus only of similar substance? This would be the topic of conversation and debate throughout the entire council. The two main adversaries uh, were, of course, Arius, uh, presbyter from Alexandria, and then Athanasius, bishop of Alexandria. The teaching of Arius was the teaching that was under scrutiny at this council. Arius taught that there was a time when the Son that is Christ, he taught there was a time when the Son was not. In other words, Arius was teaching that Jesus was created. Jesus was a created being, was the teaching of Arius. In order to uh, understand this from uh, maybe a modern perspective, understand that Jehovah's Witnesses are modern-day Arians. They believe mostly the same thing that Arius taught. They believe that Jesus was created by God first, and then Jesus went and created everything else. Now, having, since this council, having 1,700 years of church history to reflect on this decision, we really understand what was at stake here. To deny the deity of Christ... To say that Jesus is not God is to be very plain and simple about it, is to be a heretic. There is really no easy way around that. It is to be a false teacher, and it is to deny the gospel itself. The gospel is meaningful precisely because Jesus is God. The deity of Christ gives the gospel its meaning, and so that is really what was at stake here in the early church. The debate centered around one letter of one Greek word. So sometimes you think, man, these uh, theologians and pastors and Christians, they argue, I mean, they're, they're arguing about one letter, okay, in this council. Um. It is uh, a letter in Greek that makes one word or another word. It is a letter, and really the word, 
uh, carries a lot of theological weight. So the debate, if you care to know this, was between the two words, homoousios, okay, say that five times fast, and uh, homousios. It is the Greek letter uh, Yoda that makes the difference, or the English letter I, that makes the difference between these two words. One word has the letter, and one word does not have the letter. Arius, the heretic, was advocating for uh, homoousios, which means similar substance or similar essence. Arius was teaching that Jesus was not the same as God, but he was only similar to God. He was a lesser created being. Athanasius was advocating for the other Greek word, homousios, which means same substance or essence. It is rumored that among the 200 bishops at the council was, of course, St. Nicholas, Bishop of Myra, in what is modern-day Turkey. I say rumored because actually very little is known about St. Nicholas, and I do want to be very careful to distinguish fact from legend. St. Nicholas, we do know, was a very generous man, uh, and actually especially to children. There is one interesting legend uh, where he rescued three girls from being forced into prostitution, Uh, He actually, according to the legend, left coins in the stockings that were hanging by the fireplace. And, of course, you can see where that goes to uh, the modern day. Uh, One of the legends from St. Nicholas comes from his time at the Nicene Council. And according to legend, I have to say this is legend, uh, when Arius was speaking, you all know where this is going. When Arius was speaking, uh, St. Nicholas got so angry that he stood up. He crossed the room, and he punched Arius in the face. And because of this, again, uh, he went to jail. Now, I'm not advocating that this is a legitimate way to deal with heretics. Um, Although I would say that it would make theological debates more lively if this was (laughs) permitted uh, today. Now, St. Nicholas... Uh, because we have to preserve his good character and reputation. Again, this is rumor. I, it is rumored that he went to jail because of this, and then he repented over this and was restored to his post. So we can say that St. Nicholas had a good ending there uh, at Nicaea. Now, as interesting perhaps maybe as it may be to talk about these stories at Christmas time and this sort of thing, we have to keep the substance of the matter in the forefront. And we have to deal with this issue biblically because this was a very and is a very serious issue. Is Jesus God or was there a time when the Son was not? Each year around Christmas, I take a little break from our usual sermon series and give a couple of Christmas messages And this uh, year, uh, what I would like to do today is to take some time in light of Christmas to evaluate this question regarding the deity of Christ. When we think of Christmas, we think of the incarnation of Christ. And so one might ask the question, how is a sermon on the deity of Christ a Christmas message? 
And the reason this is relevant is because the incarnation is meaningless if Jesus is not God. Christmas is meaningless if Jesus is not God. Uh, just consider one of the foremost Christian texts or Christmas texts this time of year, and that is Isaiah 9-6. And you all know Isaiah 9-6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, what? Mighty God. Right here, in one of the foremost Christmas texts, we have the deity of Christ. Wrapped up in the very fabric of the incarnation is the declaration that Jesus is God. And so for this reason, our message, although we're going to look at a handful of, of, of uh, texts today, our message will loosely center around Luke 2.11, which does the same thing that Isaiah 9.6 does. You can put these two verses together in this sense. And that is that in this, what we classically have as a Christmas text, uh, is um, in this text is the deity of Christ. And so we read, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ who? The Lord. Christ the Lord. We have the deity of Christ right here in this passage. Now, there's one more thing that I want to do, and I know I've had a little bit of a lengthy uh, introduction here, but there's one more thing that I want to do uh, by way of introduction, and really probably more just clarifying what we've already stated. Um, Jesus's ability to function as the Savior of mankind is directly tied to his deity. If Jesus is going to be able to save us, he must be God. It has to be that way. Said another way, if Jesus was not God, he would not be able to save us. And so I'd like to bring uh, a quotation here for you. Uh, a quotation from Anselm of Canterbury, the Italian archbishop from the 11th and 12th century. Speaking of our sin debt, he said this, and I think he's right about this. This debt, our debt that we owed for our sin, was so great that none but man must solve the debt, and none but God was able to do it, so that he who does it must be both God and man. This is why Jesus, God, had to become a man. He had to become a man because we are the ones who owe the debt. Mankind owes the debt, and he had to be God because he was the only one able to pay it. Christmas is a celebration of the incarnation of Christ, and it's important to know that apart from the deity of Christ, the incarnation is meaningless. If Arius was right then the very foundations of Christianity, let alone Christmas, would be shaken to the core. And so let's say it this way. If Christ is not Lord, Christ is not Savior. And if Christ is not Savior, then we are still lost in our sins. This is what is at stake here in this doctrine. Or in light of Christmas, we could say it this way, Christmas is made meaningful because Jesus is God. And so in light of this, I'd like us to ask ourselves a question today. How do we know that Jesus is God? We're really going to look at this in two big sections before we conclude. We're going to look at uh, the Arian view, then we're going to look at the Orthodox view, 
And then we're going to conclude by looking at the uh, Nicene Creed itself. So let's begin here by looking at the question, is Jesus God? And we're going to see this from the Arian view and then respond to it. This is what we're dealing with today. If Christ is not Lord, Christ is not Savior. Arius, I'm going to actually use three of the passages that Arius used at Nicaea to argue that Jesus is not God. The first passage he used was uh, Colossians 1.15, talking about Jesus. His text says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You can guess what Arius clung to. It's the word firstborn here. The second passage he used was John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and of course you know the King James Version that says his only begotten son, uh, that would be what he clung, uh, cl- clung to on that. And then Deuteronomy 6.4, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In light of these passages, Arius made this statement, if the father begat the son... He that was begotten has a beginning of existence, and from this it is evident that there was a time when the Son was not. You understand what Arius is arguing here? He's arguing that because of these texts that talk about Jesus as being begotten, that there must have been a time when Jesus did not exist. So Arius' entire premise is that there was a time when the Son was not. Jesus was, according to Arius, created. And this, of course, again, is true of modern Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe Jesus is a created being. We're going to look at each of these three verses, and it's actually going to be really brief because I'd like to spend more time looking at the positive um, examples. But we're going to look at these uh, quickly here. And the first one is Colossians 1.15 that says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. The word firstborn here is the Greek word prototokos, and it can, as Arius was arguing, it can mean, doesn't always mean, but it can mean the biological firstborn. That is a legitimate translation or meaning of the word, but it does not always mean the biological firstborn. The word can also mean the preeminent one. You are the firstborn in the sense that you are the preeminent one. Or it can also mean, uh, similarly, one who is first in time and rank. Uh, And that is the meaning, and and this is not just, well, it could mean this. Uh, This meaning is used elsewhere in Scripture. So, for example, Hebrews 12, 23, this same Greek word, firstborn, is used to describe all believers. All believers are the firstborn. That, of course, can't mean uh, that yeah, a biological firstborn, but it talks about the preeminence and the priority of the believers versus unbelievers in God's economy. Also, the Old Testament uh, includes this idea as well. Uh, Israel, in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, is also called God's firstborn son. And so this word does not always mean biological, physical firstborn. It does carry the idea of first in rank. 
Now, I do want to have one, uh, one more consideration here about the Colossians text, uh, and that is that the very next verse, Colossians 1.16, really helps to, uh, to give meaning to Colossians 1.15, because Colossians 1.16 says, by him all things were created. Jesus created all things. So, there can only be two categories. Everything fits into one of two boxes. Either it fits into the box of things that are created, or it fits into the box of that which is creator. Everything fits in those two boxes. Because Jesus created, not some things, but all things, Jesus can't go into that created box because he created all things. He has to be in the other box, which is the creator box. Now, I will say, in light of this, modern Arians, Jehovah's Witnesses, understand the problem this creates for their false teaching. And so if you pick up um, uh, their... I'm going to put in quotes here for those listening. If you pick up the Joe's Witness translation, you and you go to this passage in Colossians, you will see that the Jehovah's Witnesses have added one word to Colossians 1.16 that is not in the Greek at all. Now, from what I've studied on this, the early translations uh, of the New World Translation had an asterisk at the end of this word and said this was added for clarity. The more modern renditions have removed that, and they don't notate this at all. Does anyone know what the word that they added to Colossians 1.16 was? Bonus points if you know this. Does anyone know? No, it's the word other. So they say, so the text says, by him all things were created, and they say, by him, all other things were created. You understand what is being done here? There is, by the way, this, there is no textual variant for this. This is something that they've simply added to the passage. In other words, here's what we're saying. Modern Arians know Colossians 1 doesn't work. They know that Colossians 1 cannot be used to prove that Jesus was created. They understand, even if Arius did not understand, that you have to mess with Scripture in order to make it say Jesus isn't God. Okay, So that's the first text that Arius used. The second text that he used at Nicaea was John 3.16. Um, and of course, you know that the issue is with the word begotten. Uh, the King James Version says um, the only begotten son. And I just want to read to you the meaning of this word begotten, and this is from uh, really the foremost Greek lexicon, uh, but it says this, the word begotten in John 3.16 uh, pertains to being only uh, the only one of its kind, or the one and only, and the ESV reflects this, of course. Uh, the second meaning it gives is pertaining to being the only one of its kind or class, unique in kind. So this word uh, really means the, the unique, the one and only Son of God. 
rather than in the sense of begotten in that he was created. And then finally, uh, we'll just hit real quickly here the Deuteronomy 6 passage where God is one. Uh, This would be a good time to remind us that Trinitarians do believe that God is one. There is nothing that Trinitarians disagree with in the Deuteronomy 6 passage. Trinitarians believe that God is one being in three persons. And so that is, uh, in a nutshell, what Arius was teaching. And so let's go to what Scripture says. And so this really is our second point today. Is Jesus God? And this is going to be the orthodox view. Remember what we are saying here. Remember what is at stake here. If Christ is not Lord, Christ is not Savior. This is what we are, uh, the claim that we are making today. Uh, Let's look at the biblical text that um, establish the deity of Christ. And I'm going to do this kind of as I did by looking at the text that Arius brought up. I'm going to do this using some of the passages that Athanasius used. And so we're going to look at these passages, uh, not all of them, but we're going to look at a handful of them here and, uh, and look at uh, how he argued for the deity of Christ. Uh, this is, these are coming from his letter to the uh, Egyptian bishops. And Athanasius lays out the heresy of the Arians, and then he responds with scriptures. You may want to jot these down, even as you have opportunity for that inevitable door knock. Uh, from modern-day Arians um, as, you, as you have opportunity to engage with them in conversation. The first uh, text that he uses in his letter is John 1.1. 1, 1. And, and I'm going to, um, before we look at John 1, we're going to look at what Athanasius wrote in his letter. And he said this, John, for example, says the word existed in the beginning, but these men, which is the Arians, say he did not exist before he was begotten. And so he lays out the text, he lays out uh, what the Arians are saying and arguing against it. And of course, John 1.1 1, 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, what I would like to draw attention to in John 1.1 1, 1 is the end of the verse where we read, The Word was God. Now, the Word we know, this is the, the word, Word. Uh, it is the word logos in Greek, um, and it is the meaning, what this word means is given to us later on in verse 14 of John 1, where we read, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So we know that this is talking about Christ. The word is Jesus. And I would suggest to us that John 1.1 is probably one of the clearest verses in all of Scripture declaring the deity of Christ. Athanasius knew this. And he rebuked the Arians who claimed that Jesus did not exist before he was begotten. And this verse is clear in John 1, uh, John 1, 1, because it simply says Jesus is God. Because the word was God. This is a declaration that Jesus is God. It is really hard to be more direct than this. It's hard to be clearer than this in Scripture. I mean, it, Jesus is God. What more information do you want to add to this? And perhaps it is because of the clarity of this verse that it has been attacked so much by modern-day Arians. And uh, I'm not, I, I don't want to um, discuss that aspect today. I am happy to discuss it afterwards, if you'd like to. Uh, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of 
technical stuff going on with what modern Arians are doing regarding the Greek, the Greek article, the predicate nominative, and all those kinds of interesting and fun details uh, about what's going on in John 1.1. 1, 1. Um, but if you want to talk about that, you can ask me afterwards. But let's go on to the second verse that he used, and that is John or 1 John 5.20. And again, I'm going to put what Athanasius wrote here. And then we'll go to the verse itself. And again, John has written, We are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And then he says, But these men, as if to contradict this, claim that Christ is not the true God, but that Scripture only calls him God. Well, I mean, Scripture calls him God, but he's not really God. (laughs) And so Athanasius responds to this. 1 John 5.20, we'll pull up the whole verse here. It says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true and his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And, of course, the relevant statement here is that Jesus is the true God. And Athanasius notes that the Arians were refuting this by saying, Jesus isn't God. Scripture only calls him God. (laughs) Okay, well... If Scripture isn't our authority, then what is our authority? Um, And, of course, this was uh, a bad uh, defense of the heresy. Uh, It was bad heresy to begin with, but it was a bad defense of that heresy. The next verse that Arius, or I'm sorry, Athanasius used is actually kind of an interesting one. And um, it's not one that I would have run to. But after you hear the verse, you say, yeah, that's proof of the deity of Christ right there. And that is Romans chapter 1 and verse 25. Athanasius says this, The Apostle Paul condemns the Gentiles for worshiping created beings, saying, Romans 1.25, they worship the creature more than God the creator. You see that? Paul says, we're not supposed to worship creatures, only God. And then he continues, but if these men say that the Lord Jesus is a created being and worship him as a created being, how do they differ from Gentiles? What's the difference? If they hold this opinion, is this passage not against them? And does the blessed Paul not write in condemnation of them? You see the logic here? You see what Athanasius is doing? Let's look at the verse. It says this, Romans 1.25 because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. Do you not see even in scripture when angels are worshiped? You know, you ever see an angel, someone meets an angel and they fall down and they were, what do the angels say? Don't worship me. I'm not God. We are not permitted, according to Romans 1, to worship any of creation. We are permitted to worship God and God alone. In fact, not only are we permitted, we must worship God and God alone. So here's the logic that Athanasius exposes. If Jesus is created, as you say he is, and we should not worship creation, then you can't worship Christ. If you really believe Jesus is a creature, 
then Paul's rebuking you for worshiping Jesus. You see what he's exposing here? The, the, the logical inconsistency. They are, if they're consistent, acting like pagans. And so the essential argument here is you can't have your cake and eat it too. Now, I do want to expand this argument just a little bit further. And I want to read some passages where Jesus accepts worship. Which proves that the Arians can't be right that he's a created being. Because there's, I'm going to give you a list of verses here right now where Jesus is worshipped and Jesus never once says, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. Just worship God alone. He lets them worship him. Okay? So Matthew 28, 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Okay? So the doubt is their, their problem. Jesus never says, stop, stop, stop. Matthew 14, 33. Immediately he made the disciples get... Um, actually, I think I included a lot more verses than I intended there. Verse 33. Can you guys skip ahead to wherever verse 33 is? Those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. He allows them, uh, permits them, and accepts worship. Matthew 28 uh, verse 9 says, Behold, Jesus met them and said greetings, and they came uh, up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. John nine thirty eight, 38, uh, Thomas saying, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Uh, John twenty twenty eight, Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. In each of these verses, what does Jesus do? He accepts worship. And now we know, according to Romans 1, and we could, I think, include the Ten Commandments in here as well, that we must only worship who? And so when Jesus accepts worship, who is he claiming to be? He's claiming to be God. All right, what's the point of all this? Where are you going with this? Here's the claim, and here's the Christmassy part of this message. If Jesus is not Lord, Jesus is not Savior. Everything about your salvation and my salvation and everything about Christmas hinges on this truth, that Jesus is God. We opened up with Luke 2.11 that says this, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is... Who? Christ the Lord. You see, this verse, and we could pull Isaiah 9, 6 in as well, we realize that Savior and Lord go together. You get both or you get none. Jesus is God. Fortunately, the Council of Nicaea came to the right conclusion They rebuked Arius as teaching heresy, and they concluded that Jesus is God. Now, I'm going to do something here that you might find uh, boring, but you should not find it boring. And that is I'm going to read the Nicene Creed to you. Uh, It's very short, so there's that. Um, But I want to read this to you in particular because I want you to see how they dealt with this particular issue of the deity of Christ. 
And so if you guys want to just follow along with me back there uh, so I can just read it and not have to click through it. Uh, The Nicene Creed says this, We believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. So God is one, right? And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, using that language that Scripture uses, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. You see the distinction there? Begotten, not made, being of one substance. Not a similar substance, but being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And on the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic, and this is meaning universal, by the way, not big C Catholic, little c Catholic. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look uh, for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. It is because of this truth, particularly, that Jesus was begotten, not made, that he is of one substance with the Father. It is because of this truth that salvation, and consequently Christmas, is possible. Without this, there is no salvation. Remember what we quoted in the beginning, and that is this. This debt was so great that while none but man must solve the debt, none but God was able to do it. The incarnation of Christ, the event that we celebrate at Christmas, is made meaningful because of the deity of Christ, because Christ is God. And if I could uh, then make application uh, of this for today, I think I would suggest to us that first and foremost, this message today and the application of this message is a call to worship for us. We are to fall down before this great God. Christmas time is a time where we do a lot of self worship. Um, the materialism that characterizes our nation for the rest of the year is really on steroids at this time of year. And when we look at this, we recognize that Christmas quickly becomes all about me, and it's not all about you. Um, let us be mindful this Christmas of the object of our worship. What, what is it 
that you are worshiping? Is it Christ or is it self? And I, listen, I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is don't celebrate Christmas. We are going to celebrate Christmas. We put a few lights up in our house. We put a Christmas tree up. And I think all these things are good and wonderful gifts from God that we can partake in. But just make sure that in your celebration, you're celebrating Christ and you're worshiping Christ. And he's the object of all of this. So that really is, I think, the thrust of the application today is that we are to worship Christ because he is God. And if I could add maybe a part B onto this, because we are talking about this from the perspective of the incarnation, I would say worship Jesus because he humbled himself in becoming a man. He did not have to do that, and yet Christ does that for us. And so this brings us to a modification of our opening statement, okay? Having gone through this brief um, uh, text and several texts, we made an initial statement, and that was this. If Christ is not Lord, Christ is not Savior, okay? Um, But we have to modify this statement slightly as we've reached the conclusion of this message. And we have to modify it by getting rid of the word if. Okay, this is not an if-then, okay? This is a since. And so we're going to say, instead of saying, if Christ is not Lord, Christ is not Savior, we're going to say this. Since Christ is Lord, Christ is Savior. Since he is our Lord, since he is God, he is Savior. That is undeniable. And one day, every single knee will bow and every tongue will make that confession. You will either make that confession now with great joy and worship and adoration, or you will make that, uh, that, that claim under duress, before you are cast into hell. Either way, your tongue will say, Christ is Lord. It will happen. And so one of the reminders of this is that at Christmas time, and many of us I know will be spending additional time with family and friends and so on and so forth, Let us preach Christ joyfully uh, to our friends, to our family, to our neighbors, to our coworkers. Let's point them to the sufficiency of Christ, the joy of knowing Christ, and the lordship of Christ, and consequently, because of that lordship, uh, the fact that he is a sufficient Savior. And I'll just maybe make one more application here, and that is if you have not repented and believed in this Christ, in this Lord, in this Savior, if you've not repented and believed in this God become man, then I would encourage you and invite you today to trust uh, in him and him alone. And of course, as always, uh, I'm happy to talk to you about this, and I know that many, many people here in the church are also happy to share the gospel with you and point you to the hope 
that's available in Christ. Thank you, God, for today. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the sufficiency of Christ. We pray that you might help us to go and worship you because of your lordship. We pray that you'd help us to acknowledge your goodness and kindness to us. Thank you for this Christmas season. Reminder that Christ is Lord. May that be something that we speak from our own lips uh, continuously, acknowledging that we pray in Christ's name. Amen.